gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. Would you please open your Bibles up to Deuteronomy chapter 4. My name is Joshua Hankins. I'm the children's pastor here at Heritage. And it is such a truly an honor to be able to bring God's word to you all this morning. Uh, it is so much fun working with your kids. Uh, I don't know if you have spent any time in children's ministry here at Heritage or if you have kids, uh, nieces, nephews, grandchildren who are a part of our ministry here. But our children's ministry here is very, very special. Uh, there is such a sweet community among the children who are here at Heritage, and it has truly been just the greatest joy to be able to work with them for this past year and a half. It, it, it is a high honor to work with our kids, but it is not free from its absolutely paralyzingly terrifying aspects. Uh, and uh, the one aspect I would say that has weighed the most heavily on me since coming to Heritage as children's pastor is the fact that the kids are always watching. They are always watching. And those of you who are aunts and uncles and parents and grandparents, you already know this, that your kids are always watching. And as uh, their children's pastor, I can tell you, they tell stories when you're not around. So y'all, I know things about you that you have certainly not disclosed to me. Um, but, but it is a two-way street. I, I am I'm, I would hate to hear the dinnertime conversations that start with, guess what Pastor Joshua said? Um, let's, let's just agree right now to make this a two-way street of grace. How about that? Uh, it has always been this way, and it will always be this way, that children watch adults, and they are shaped by what they see. So, if we know that children's taste in art or children's love for certain sports or if, you know, political values even are passed down from parent to child, then how much more is our faith imitated in our children or those who are watching us? And for us as the body of Christ, even if you don't have kids, you belong to a body here. You fit into this category of somebody who has influence over children. Just by virtue of the fact that you exist here in this community, in this body, where children do exist. And so uh, what this means for all of us is that our personal faith and our walk with God is not nearly as personal as we would like to think sometimes. Yes, we do all have our own personal relationships with God, but in our tendency to be more individualistic, we have to be aware of the times that we minimize or downplay the role that our personal faith plays in shaping those who are around us, especially children. 
And guys, this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. This is how God designed us as humans. It's how Christ has even organized his church. We are the body of Christ, and that includes children or other impressionable people. But what happens when things go wrong? Now, sometimes some of us know all too well that it happens that those who do seem to have hearts that are close to God and we, we trust them, we come to find that their hearts are actually far from Him. Or what happens when those who are in a position of spiritual authority or high spiritual influence end up doing great damage to those who are under their care? And how can we as those who are just, I mean, we're, we're adults, so we carry spiritual influence. How can we possibly steward this well in, for the sake of our community and for the sake of the glory of God, particularly for our children? This is something that truly, if I'm being honest, terrifies me as a children's pastor. Uh, and I, I've spoken to so many parents who are having this same struggle. You can't like, you, you already feel so close and intimate with your kid. You can't even get, like, 30 seconds in the bathroom alone, let alone you, you, having to pass down your faith and all of the mess that you carry and the things that you, you don't think you have right with God, and now your child is going to imitate that. I know I'm not alone in feeling heavy, feeling concerned, feeling honestly a little bit scared by this. So, there is a passage that has spoken to me so much and helped alleviate my fears regarding this that I would love for us to look at today, and it's Deuteronomy 4.9. So, Deuteronomy 4.9. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel as they are about to inherit the land of Israel. So, this is God speaking through Moses, and Moses says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Now, with this text in mind, I would like to revisit a story that we all heard in Sunday school. Uh, it's a story about a man who saw God do something miraculous, but at the end of his life, he slowly began to tune out the voice of God. And this is a man who did not do what Deuteronomy 4.9 says and keep a careful watch over his soul. And in turn, he forgot the great things that he had seen God do. And when he died, his children's walk with God suffered. So, Please now turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 8, where we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon. And as we read through Judges chapter 8, we're going to be guided by this passage in Deuteronomy 4 9 that we just read. And so we're going to split this up, this story through Judges chapter 8. We're going to split it up into three parts. Uh, and these three parts are the three parts of this passage, Deuteronomy 4 9. So the first part. It's part one, is take care and keep your soul diligently. Take care and keep your soul diligently. 
Another way to say this is to simply guard your affections. We know that we only act out of our affections. We know that we only act out of the things that we love. So we need to take care and keep our souls diligently to guard our affections. Now, the first part of this story, and uh, where we pick up in Judges chapter 8, we're seeing Gideon hot on the heels of a miraculous victory against the Midianites. Yet it is here in chapter 8 that he slowly begins to neglect his soul. Now, if you grew up in the church, you likely remember the story, but we're going to review it just to make sure that we're all on the same page. When we first meet Gideon, he's hiding out in a wine press. In the, he, he's part of the tribe of Manasseh, and he's, he's, he's there. It's a small tribe, and he's kind of hunkered down in this wine press, and he's afraid. He's terrified because the Midianites, who are a nomadic people who have come from the east, have descended upon the land of Israel and are now snatching up all of the food and all of the resources from Israel. They're being a drain on the resources of Israel. So that's why we see Gideon hiding in a wine press and he's threshing his wheat, which is a very inconvenient place to be threshing wheat. Uh, he's trying to protect his food. So this is where we meet Gideon. And Gideon in this wine press is visited by a messenger from the Lord who has told him that he is specifically been chosen to free Israel from Midianite oppression. So you may remember the way that Gideon responded to this news. He, he was kind of dumbfounded. He was beside himself. And he, he said, this can't possibly be the case. Me of the small tribe of Manasseh? To free Israel from Midian, that cannot be. So he proceeds to put God to the test, not once, not twice, but three times he puts God to the test, just to make sure that this is actually a message that's coming from God. And God passes all of the tests, by the way. Then, if that wasn't enough, God in his kindness gives, sends Gideon on what, what I like to think of as like a training wheels mission. He says, okay, I've, I've called you to go fight the Midianites, take care of them, but since you don't seem ready, why don't you go and pull down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father? Did we forget that part of the story? Gideon is being raised by a Baal worshiper. This should startle us. So Gideon, sure enough, he goes, he tears down the altar of Baal that belonged to his father. Gideon has tested God multiple times now. God now believes Gideon is ready for the task. And so God turns it on its head and begins to test Gideon. And this is probably the part of the story that we all remember from Sunday school. It's a, it's a little bit strange. It, it, it basically is where God whittles down the army of Gideon to a mere 300 men. You might remember something about a stream and if they lap up the water like a dog and then they go home. Uh, the details are not important. What matters is that Gideon has to go to battle against the Midianites with only 300 men. So, Gideon takes his army, and God gives an incredible victory to the people of Israel through this teeny tiny army. Now, remember our passage in Deuteronomy 4.9. Remember this. We are to remember the great things that we have seen Yahweh do. 
And now Gideon, at this point in his life, he's got a story for the ages. He can tell his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren the things that he has seen Yahweh do through him. Now, something very important to note. This is, this is Judges 6 and 7, and the, the narrative of Gideon goes all the way through chapter 9. Throughout this process in Judges 6 and 7, Gideon is having a constant dialogue with the Lord. The, this, this totally frames the story. Uh, it, it cannot be missed. If you remove Yahweh from Judges 6 and 7, uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense. Gideon would be talking to nobody. Uh, it would not work. Yahweh is a main character in this story. Now, this is often where we end the story. You know, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Yes, Gideon wins. But uh, this is not the end of the story. I wish it was. Uh, the Gideon narrative continues all the way to chapter 9. We're only halfway through. But at this point, at the end of chapter 7, and this is where we're going to pick up, um, and y'all, this is definitely something we leave out of the Sunday school stories. We've got Oreb and Zeb, the generals of Midian, who are executed um, by the tribe of Ephraim. They escape Oreb and Zeb, the generals of Midian. They escape from the battle and are executed promptly by the tribe of Midian, who were not there at the battle. So, remembering the fact that chapters 6 and 7 have been marked by the persistent back and forth between Gideon and Yahweh, let's pick up this story in chapter 8 looking for the voice of Yahweh. Let's all look for the voice of Yahweh. Um, you're not going to find it. Chapter 8, then the men of Ephraim said to him, that's Gideon, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So Gideon meets up with the Ephraimites, and basically the Ephraimites are a little bit upset because they were not invited to the battle. But really, who was invited to the battle? It was only these 300 men, and it was all to show the incredible power of Yahweh to be able to push back the Midianites with only 300 men. And so now, instead of using this as an opportunity to talk to the men of Ephraim and say, look, God did this amazing thing. He pushed back the Midianites with just 300 of us, and actually, you not being there brought more glory to Yahweh. He didn't go that route. Instead, he uses his own cunning to appease them. Now, this might seem like a very little thing, and, and you know, it is, but it is signaling for us a change in Gideon's frame of mind. This is his first act of neglect in keeping a careful watch over his soul. So now, in chapter 8, we meet the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunah. Now, evidently, Ziba and Zalmunah have escaped from Israel proper, and they've crossed over into Transjordan in the east. And so Gideon pursues them, along with his 300 battle-weary men, and they approach a city that is still within the territory of Israel called Sukkoth. 
Now let's read verse 5, chapter 8, verse 5. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunah, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunah already in your hand that we should give bread to your enemy? So uh, the men of Sukkoth get a little bit feisty with Gideon here. Um, they certainly, 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 they should have given Gideon and his men food, demonstrating the basic form of hospitality. But how does Gideon respond? Let's keep looking at verse 7. So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zalmunah into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Yikes. Did y'all hear that? Let's keep going. Verse 8. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, it's more like when I come again in victory, he's certainly not going to come in peace. When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now, this is certainly not good behavior on the, really anybody's side, okay? But certainly not the, the men of Sukkoth and Penuel. By the way, Penuel means literally face of God, all right? Penuel is the place where Jacob wrestled with God right before he went to reconcile himself to his brother Esau. And so uh, Gideon for sure would have known, I'm at Penuel, and the name literally means face of God. You would think Gideon would know this story backwards and forwards, and he would be reminded of Yahweh and his faithfulness and all the things that he has done up to this point. Um, instead, we see that he is caught up in personal offense with the men who did not demonstrate basic hospitality. Now, a couple of things to point out uh, regarding the flow of our story here. Have you been listening for the voice of Yahweh? This voice that was so present in sending Gideon to fight against the Midianites to save, him, save them from the Midianites, it's now, it's now completely silent. Gideon is definitely on a mission, but it is certainly not the one that Yahweh has sent him on. And what is, what is going on with Gideon? This, this is the Gideon who needed to test God three times in order to work up the courage to do what God has assigned him to do. And now that he's off on this little side quest of his own invention, he has no problem asserting himself as an authority figure. And now he's being distracted from his main mission of capturing these Midianite kings only to make threats to his own people. Something else is motivating Gideon's actions. Something is drawing his affection. Let's look at verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 13. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez. Okay, forgot to mention, he got him. Ziba and Zalmunah, they are in tow. He captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, 
Look, behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? He's rubbing it in their face. And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkot a lesson. This is a euphemism. It basically means he he threshed them with these briars. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and he killed the men of the city. It's a little harsh, wouldn't you say? Now, he didn't say anything the first time that he was in Penuel about killing the men of Penuel. He just said, I'm going to tear down your tower. But when he returned, he was far more severe with them. Was Gideon asked to do any of this by God? Now keep in mind, God was the one who, who like, beat by beat was telling him what to do in the story leading up to this point, and now he is silent. God is not the one telling Gideon to do this. And his silence is deafening. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. The imperative of this verse is to take care and to keep your soul diligently. Gideon, at this point in our story, has lost complete care of his soul by straying from the voice of the Lord and chasing after his own affairs. Now, the second part of this verse in Deuteronomy, it delivers the warning, should you fail to keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, or lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And unfortunately, this is what defines the next part, part two of Gideon's story. So part two, we will call, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Now, before continuing the story, I should mention that Gideon does, in fact, end up executing Ziba and Zalmunah, and he, this is important, he actually takes the medallions from their camel's necks and keeps them for himself. And thus ends the section in Judges 8 of the, or really the whole Gideon narrative, of the fight against Midian. Continuing the story, let's look at verse 22. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, that sounds nice, right? It it even sounds a little bit like the Shema, you and your sons and your son's sons. But two things happen after this, immediately after this, that show us the exact disposition of Gideon's heart. First, he has a son and names him Abimelech. And Abimelech means, my father is king. So even though Gideon has told the people, no, I will not rule over you as king, and nor will my son rule over you as king, he has a son and names him, my father is king. There is a major incongruence here between his heart and his words and his actions. Second, and this is more damning, Gideon asks for the people of Israel 
to hand over the spoil from the Midianites. And he includes the medallions that he snatched from the camel's necks of Ziba and Zalmunah. And in verse 27, it says this, And Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city in Ophrah, and all of Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now, another way to bring out the shade of this, it's a, it's a, gross, it's a gross verb, but the verb to whore after, a better way, to, or just another way to bring out kind of the nuance of this is they cheated on Yahweh with the ephod. This is familial language. They cheated on him with this ephod. So the verb that the author is using to ch- choosing to use here is drawing our eyes to the future destruction of Gideon's family. It's evident that Gideon has lost the care of his soul. And he did, in fact, forget the things that he had seen. And now he's going to die, an old man, with a legacy that is not marked by the miraculous works that Yahweh did through him, but as a man who created a stumbling block for himself and his entire family, and not just his whole family, we're about to see the massive damage that this man of spiritual influence is going to do to the rest of Israel. And that leads us to part three. Make them known to your children and your children's children. This is part three. Now, in order to capture the full devastation of what happens next and of, of Gideon's inability to leave a positive spiritual legacy for those in his care, we need to go back and revisit a couple of points in our story that we've already going, gone over, starting with when Gideon returns to Sukkoth and Penuel with Ziba and Zalmunah with him, okay? So let's look back at that. Uh, we breezed over it, but what exactly happens? Flip back to uh, 8.13, Back to verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez. And he captured, this is the thing we want to bring our attention to, he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. This is the first place we see in our story generational language being used. This boy, this young man, he's called a na'ar. And the, uh, basically a na'ar is a, an adolescent male. And the actual language that's used here is he is a na'ar from the anashim. He is a young boy from the men. So we see strong generational language that is, that is kind of difficult to bring out into English. He is a young boy from the men. And Gideon is essentially asking this young boy, apart from the men, a young boy, to draw up a hit list of men who he should punish. Now, already in our minds, we see Gideon drawing youth into his personal attack against Sukkoth and Penuel. And from this point on, Gideon's generational legacy is going to be defined by violence. After executing the men of Penuel and after tearing down their tower, he turns back to his main mission and he strikes up a conversation with Ziba and Zalmunah, where he finds out, and this is a heartbreaking moment for Gideon, he finds out that they were the ones who actually killed his own brothers. 
And it's this moment of anguish, and Gideon cries out, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. Note the family language. And Gideon then turns to his firstborn son. And let's look in verse 20. So Gideon said to Yether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Salmunah said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunah. Did you feel that? The kids are watching. Imagine the influence that this must have had over Gideon's son, and likewise over his entire house. In this part of the story, even the enemies of Israel, the kings of Midian, are demonstrating more compassion than Gideon himself towards his own son. Now, the very next part of the story is when Gideon goes home and he makes an ephod, and it becomes a snare for himself and his house. And do you think that this influence stayed at home with Gideon and his children? No, that's not how faith works. Let's look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Yerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. What's so devastating about this is that Baal Berit, Baal was their, their, the, the Canaanite deity, and then Berit means covenant. This is Baal of the covenant. And if we're, u- we're using that same verb again to whore after Baal Berit, it's this image of cheating on Yahweh with Baal Berit. But in this case, Baal Berit almost bears the name of Yahweh. As we know, Yahweh is the true God of the covenant. And now they are putting Yahweh, the true God of the covenant, away. And they are worshiping Baal Berit, Baal of the covenant. Now, what became of Gideon's children? We know that Gideon had 70 sons um, after all of this, and these sons would have been raised in a house that honestly didn't look too dissimilar from Gideon himself, who was raised in the home of a Baal worshiper. Of these 70 sons, there's one son who is of great importance to us, and we've already mentioned him, and his name is Abimelech. What happened of to Abimelech, this boy whose name means my father is king. What's unique about Abimelech is that he was born of a concubine who lived in the city of Shechem. Uh, And the significance of Shechem is very, very hard to overstate for the people of Israel. Shechem is the place where when Israel finally entered into the land, they went to essentially ratify the covenant that they were making with Yahweh. It's where the Mosaic covenant was ratified. They stood on either side of the valley on the two mountains, and they shouted the blessings and the curses across to one another. That was overlooking the city of Shechem. So now for Abimelech to be born in the city of Shechem... uh, this is, this is significant. We don't have time for all of the details for the Abimelech story, but what happens is Abimelech starts an uprising in Shechem. 
he declares himself as king over Israel, and he pulls together for himself this group of worthless men is what they're called, and he declares himself as king, and in doing so, he slaughters his 70 brothers. These are the sons of Gideon. He slaughters his 70 brothers. Now, eventually, the people of Shechem, who once supported him, would turn on him. And so, in a fit of rage, Abimelech traps the people of Shechem, the leaders of Shechem, into a tower, and he burns it to the ground. Just like his father tearing down a tower in Penuel, so Abimelech traps the leaders of Shechem in a tower and burns it down. And then, just as Gideon, his father, went on to a second city, Abimelech does the same and goes on from Shechem to a second city where there is another tower where he does the same by trapping the citizens of that city in the tower. And he goes to light it on fire, but you probably know this part of the story. A woman drops a millstone from the top of the tower and hits him on the head and he dies. This is very much a like father, like son moment. Except things got much, much worse this time. Because Gideon did not care for his soul, he forgot the works that the Lord had done through him, and he was unable to teach his children. And because of it, all of Israel suffered. Now, this is a terribly sad story. Sorry to be such a downer this morning, but that's Judges. The story continues to follow this trajectory. It's, it's a spiral all the way down. Uh, we, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, even through 1 Samuel, until we get to the incredible story of Saul and David, where this whole trajectory is flipped on its head. And David the younger has a heart that is closer to Yahweh than Saul the older. Finally, in David, we have a leader in Israel who takes his spiritual influence seriously, who guards his soul and remembers the works that the Lord has done through him, and in some cases tells his children of it. But even David, as we know, fell short in all three of these areas, and the trend only continued after David's death. Could there possibly be a leader in Israel or even just someone of basic spiritual influence who could possibly live up to the command of God through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 to watch your soul and to tell faithfully of the God you know to generations that come after you? Is there anyone who could do this? Jesus Christ is that one Jesus kept perfect watch over his soul. His affections were properly set on his father. Though he was tempted in every way as we are, he obeyed the law of God perfectly and went to the father in prayer regularly, never departing from his perfect will. Jesus kept perfect watch over his soul. Second, Jesus remembered the great things that God had done. Jesus was present there when the foundations of the earth were set, and he intimately knew the character of his father, and he did not forget the purpose of his father's redemptive plan, even though he knew it would require his suffering. And finally, Jesus made the greatness of God known 
to future generations, in that even in the moments before his arrest, he was praying to the Father for those who would come after him in the generations to come, that we would know the love that he shares with the Father. And at his, at his ascension, he charged his disciples to do the same thing, to go out and to bring others into this love, inviting new generations to know the glories of our God and the work of his salvation. In every area where Gideon failed to live up to this command in Deuteronomy 4.9, Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. And now, you and I are recipients of the fruits, the fruits of Jesus' faithful walk with the Father. Even if we have been surrounded by our, like our entire lives by men and women like Gideon, who have failed us and have negatively contributed to our spiritual health. We can know that Christ is that perfect example for all of us. If you are a parent or someone who has influence over a child and you feel ill-equipped to be in a position of spiritual influence, over others in your life, know this is not a burden you have to carry alone. You have someone you can always reorient yourself to and someone you can always point our children to. We will never get it right perfectly like he did. But Jesus was able to do this perfectly. I would like for us to pray now for the Spirit of God to turn our hearts to Christ. He is our perfect example. We should commit ourselves to keeping a careful watch over our souls so that we can remember the great work that he has done in us and so that others may come to know his salvation. Let's pray. Father, you are so kind to us. You are so good in giving us example after example of those who have failed to live up to your law. Lord, we look at Gideon and we see ourselves, we see our own inability to follow after you perfectly, but Father, we praise you for sending your son Jesus to this earth to, to complete the law of God perfectly, setting an example for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would stir the affections of each of us here at Heritage Baptist Church. Stir our affections towards the beauty of your son, May we always be oriented towards him. And Father, may we never forget the things that you have done, the work of your salvation in us. And Father, please just grant us the ability to be faithful in passing on this message to future generations. Father, we know that your spirit is able to equip us. And Lord, we do trust you that you will build your church that generations that we do not even know of yet will know your name. Father, thank you for inviting us to join you in this. Lord, we love you and we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.